Uh, this is John Green. Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thanks for being with me today. It's been uh, an interesting week, to say the least, because here we are. We had the election on Tuesday. Now it's Friday when I'm taping this because I'm going to be out of town seeing my mother for the weekend over in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're going to have a nice drive through the mountains, um, through uh, Murphy, North Carolina, and down the back way. It's about the same amount of time typically to go that way. It's just a much nicer drive, um, a lot less stress to head around the mountains that way. So looking forward to spending some time with her and my brother and sister-in-law and just hanging out and not doing very much for the next couple of days. So that'll be nice. So be praying for me when you hear this on Sunday. If you listen to it then, be praying for us for safe travels home because we'll be heading home that day. So. It's, I said, it's an interesting week. Uh, had this election this week. It's still yet to be decided. Don't know exactly what's going to happen there, do we? Um, it's going to take a while, is, I believe, the truth. It's going to take a little while before this is ultimately decided. And, um, I don't know. Maybe it'll go to the Supreme Court, even, like it did in 2000 when uh, Al Gore challenged the election because of what he thought were voting irregularities in the state of Florida and that tied everything up for several weeks and so we'll see we'll see how it shakes out but again the lord's sovereign in all things and so whichever way your sympathies lie as far as this election is concerned um, know that who's in charge ultimately is um, the one we'll be talking about today god's got it all there's no reason to be concerned about it i saw somebody post on twitter the other day that to say things like that uh, is actually toxic theology because what it does is says that um, it invalidates the lived experience of those who have been harmed by this administration. I'm not quite sure what that means, um, but here's the reality, and that is that that nothing besides the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus validates my lived experience. I've been harmed by people. I have harmed other people. None of us are innocent. There's only one who is. And, and whatever your lived experience, if you're looking for politics to validate your lived experience, then you're lost. You're hopelessly lost. And when I say you're hopelessly lost, I'm literally saying you have no hope. Because if you put your trust in man, the psalmist said, then you've wasted your time. Ecclesiastes another place to look during these times we want to go to revelation when we want to see oh is this the end times is this you know what it's just america and it's just an election at the end of the day it's not the end times and that's escapism to always be looking for the end we're not necessarily called to look for the end we're called to know the end and we're called to be prepared and always be prepared but Revelation, looking to that at the moment, is nothing more than escapism from reality. And the reality that you live in has smaller boundaries than the election in Washington. It might change things in life, but, but it's a smaller thing. And the writer of Ecclesiastes constantly says things that are under the sun. Wealth, fame, glory, women, men, work, all that stuff, he says is stuff that's under the sun. We need to be looking above the sun for our hope, for our joy, for everything, not below the sun for things. And so set your eyes above the sun, but not into the distant future, not into the eschaton, the, the world to come. No, live in this life today. Make a difference where you are. Love people. Be a realist, not an escapist by looking for 
that other thing and longing for eternity. You should be longing for the for eternity, but not at the expense of living for today. So there's my words for today regarding how we should approach all the chaotic stuff that's happening in the world around us right now. <clears throat> so there's the words that I have about that. And so now I want to turn to our lessons and say some things there. Paul, actually, we're going to start with 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I've had people misunderstand that in the in different times, and who will say that Christians aren't supposed to grieve? No, no, no. We we grieve the loss of loved ones, but we don't grieve the same way as those do who have no hope in the resurrection. We know that we will be together again in eternity. We mourn the loss of that person because their life made a difference in our lives, and so we should grieve for. Christians who have died and Christians who die, but we don't grieve as those who have no idea what comes next. No, we grieve differently. We defiantly grieve. We know that death's not the final answer, and so we grieve as those who know that and are assured of that, that the hope of the resurrection is not hope that, that is groundless. No, it's, it's based in the resurrection of Jesus himself and his promises. So certainly grieve the loss of your loved ones. But know that if they're in Christ and you're in Christ, then you will see them again, and it'll be a blessed reunion. So he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring those with him who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. And the trumpet of God would be a shofar. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's not pointing to when he thinks anything will happen. He just wants his... Um, his brothers to know how it's all going to come about in the end. And so he encourages them that those who have fallen asleep will be raised, and they'll be raised, he says, first, in fact. There's some Jewish understanding about resurrection that has to do with that, and I think it's an interesting thing, so I'm going to give you a little bit of it right now. There's an idea that that at the, the last trump, the... Um, coming again of the Messiah to, to bring about the new age will come with um, the, the people in the land of uh, Israel at the time. They will be raised first. Those who have died there and those who are there will be the first to participate. Those who have left the land have done so in violation. They've essentially abandoned the cause and they've gone somewhere else and spread abroad throughout the earth. And so they will be resurrected next. And the way they'll be resurrected is interesting because there's a, an idea that there are subterranean tunnels uh, that go all over the world. And they, the ones who have left, the ones who are in the diaspora, will roll in those tunnels like bowling balls, kind of. And that's sort of their penance for not being in the land. And then they'll pop up 
in the land. And then finally, the last people to be resurrected will be Abraham and Sarai. And the reason that they say that would be the case is because they will see in their resurrection, they will see the fulfillment of God's promise to them of their descendants being numerous as the sand on the seashore. So they will see the fulfillment of God's promise will be the first thing that they'll see. That's a Jewish belief regarding the resurrection, just so you'll know. So Paul speaks here of those who, in that same basic pattern, um, of, but without the land piece of it, that those who have died will be the first ones who experience the new life. <clears throat> so, but it all comes down, right, to belief. It's, it doesn't come down to where you are how you were born. Jesus is very clear about that with Nicodemus. You've got to be reborn. You've got to be born again of water and the Spirit. And so it all hinges and rides on your confession of Jesus Christ. And not just your confession with your lips, but it's your confession in your lives. And we see that idea in our Old Testament passage today, which is Joshua 24. It's the first three verses and then verses 14 to 25. It's not that the others are unimportant, but it, it, it one sets the ground for the main point that it's trying to get out. The first three verses set the ground, and then the last 11 verses are sort of the main point of what we're trying to convey today in the lectionary. And so what you get is Joshua doing the same thing that uh, Moses had done before his death, and that he's gathering the people and he's giving his valedictory address to the people so that they will he's going to tell them everything he wants them to remember. He's going to challenge them just the same way that Moses challenged the people. He had Moses had them on two different mountains, curses on one mountain, blessings on the other, back and forth so that they would choose life. Is what he says. And so now here we go. We've got his successor, Joshua, who gathers the people all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God, so all the people. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Interesting language there, right? He had made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So the Lord gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and then he made his offspring many. And so they are his offspring. These who now come several hundred years after the time of Abraham are counted as his offspring. And so the Lord led him through all the land that they would indeed occupy in the time of Joshua. And then I gave him Isaac. I think that's a beautiful way of saying that. It should call to mind everything that has to do with Abraham and Isaac's relationship, including what happens in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, and sacrifice him to me. The Lord gave Abraham to Isaac, but he belonged to the Lord. 
he was given to Abraham as a down payment, as a pledge of what would be to come, which is making his offspring many. But it was a gift that the Lord gave to Abraham. That's, a, that's an interesting way of, of saying something. If we considered the things that the Lord gives us gifts, then we would hold them in a different way, wouldn't we? We might hold all the gifts that he gives us, our financial blessings and everything else. We might hold them the same way Abraham held Isaac, which is the same thing Jesus challenged the rich young ruler to do, is to acknowledge that his inheritance, his earthly inheritance, wasn't the be-all, end-all, and that if he wanted to inherit eternal life, he had to lay down his earthly inheritance. But not just throw it in the wind, but to go and do for the poor. And so if we see things as gift in that way, then we have the attitude that Abraham had towards Isaac, whom he saw as gift from the Lord. So then from there, he says, now we've skipped forward to that uh, verses 14 here. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What he's saying there is pretty profound. He's saying that, that on the other side of the Red Sea and on the other side of the Jordan, you served other gods. And you got to put those away, the ones that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, because they've now come to the revelation of the living God at Mount Sinai in Exodus. And so they have a, a God now. And he says, and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us? in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore we'll also serve the Lord, for he's our God. So Joshua has challenged them to put away other gods and serve only the one true and living God, the one they know as Yahweh, the one who dwells in their midst. And they say, no, we would never serve other gods because we remember what this God has done for us. He has proven himself over and over and so we will choose to serve the Lord for he's our God. And Joshua looks at him and he says, yeah, I don't think so. He says, you're not able to serve the Lord for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we'll serve the Lord. And Joshua said, Your witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. In other words, I know that no matter what you say, I know there are foreign gods among you. I know that some of you, at least, are worshiping idols, and we need a pure and holy people who serve God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Put them away and incline your heart to the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. That's the same basic thing they said at the mountain. 
we will do and we will listen. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. They have new rules because they're living in the land. They have new statutes because they're living in the land. But Joshua made a covenant with the people, but they had to swear their allegiance to the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? Have you ever been to a wedding? That's my hint to you. That's what's happening here. Forsaking all others. And that's what Joshua is saying. Put away the foreign gods. Forsake them to serve the Lord. He is creating a, a new people, and he's asking them to renew their vows. For that generation that died in the wilderness made those vows, and now Joshua is asking this generation to make that covenant vow anew. He's the same God. He's faithful. He has been faithful ever since he made the promises, and he's been faithful to fulfill those things by making the offspring of Abraham many and giving them this land. And he's asking them, do you recommit your vows today? Do you renew the vow of your fathers? It's important always and in every generation that we do that very same thing. My faith won't save my children. Their faith must save them. They must make their own covenant vow to the Lord based on what they know, based on what they've seen. His vow is forever. His covenant promises are irrevocable, no matter the faithfulness of his people. So Joshua does right at the end of his life by asking the people to renew their vows, to make them their own, not their father's vows, but their vows. And so they take this wedding vow here in this place in Shechem. It's a powerful thing. It's an important thing that we take such vows and that we commit ourselves to the Lord. We can do it and should do it every single day. We should renew that covenant relationship every single day, knowing that he's there. It's our part that must be taken. We've got to accept our role in that. We do that in our marriages. We don't necessarily stand up every day and say, Today, Suzanne, I commit myself to the vows that I made to you that day. But in my heart, I have to make that decision all day, every day. For better or worse, sickness and in health, forsaking all others. And I've got to make a conscious decision to do that because there will be temptation, not necessarily every day, certainly, but there will be temptations when my heart can go to another. Whether my body goes or not, Jesus said, doesn't matter at some level. If you have that lust in your heart for another, then, then you've committed adultery. And so there's a temptation always to replace your wife, whether your wife is being or husband, and whether that's he, he or she is replaced with another person in your heart, or whether he or she is replaced by something of the world in your heart. There's a temptation to that. You can have other gods, things that are more important in your life than your spouse. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. What the way it's supposed to be is, is that we are to be a sign in our marriages of God's covenant love for his people. And so our covenant with one another should express the same truth and reality of the covenant between God and his people, and that is a, an everlasting love that, that is committed one to another, and nothing shall come between them. And that's a huge point, and I encourage all married people to recommit yourself 
on a regular basis in your heart, but do it consciously. I'm not saying do it sort of you know, abstractly by what you do, but no, make a conscious decision on a regular basis that you're going to keep those marriage vows. And the main vow to keep there is the forsaking all others part of that vow. And so we move from that to the <clears throat> marriage imagery that Jesus uses as well in the gospel today. And that is Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, but when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They didn't have any reserves. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there's a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus clearly, like Paul, is speaking of the end times, and he's not saying when it'll be. He's just saying be prepared. And He said, in fact, it's not for you to know the end in another place, and that's essentially what he's saying here in this parable as well because he just said be prepared for whenever it happens because the bridegroom in this case was delayed. And some were prepared. They had brought extra oil in case the bridegroom was delayed. Others assumed he would be there sooner, and so they were unprepared for the delay. And then they begged the others, give us some of what you have. And the wise virgin said, nope, because then there won't be enough for any of us. So let me give you quickly a little look at a Jewish wedding custom from that time. And that is is that the, there was an arranged bride price paid the groom went to the proposed bride's father and they arranged a price that he would have to give the father in order for the daughter to the father to give the daughter once that was arranged there was a rough sort of date set the, the groom went home to his father's house and began to prepare a place for his bride you recognize that language jesus says yes i go before you to prepare a place for you He's preparing a place for his bride. And he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And so if it were not so, I would not have told you. So the promise is made, the price is agreed upon, and now there's got to be a place for the bride in the father's house of the groom because she's leaving her place in her father's house. And so there's an addition built onto the home of the father. You see that now if you go out into the country and you know anything at all about the area and the people that live there you'll see one house on the property and then as sons daughters whatever get married they'll have their own place on that same property I grew up watching that happen over and over again in my family and the families of those that I knew down in rural northern Alabama and also rural North Georgia and so that's the way it worked was that that the father allowed the son to add on for room for he and his bride to be and then once that was ready the marriage is now ready to be consummated they were considered to be 
betrothed, which meant that she was set aside, no other could date her or whatever, and it was a pure time of, of establishing her purity was also involved in that. So the fact that she was a virgin would be an important thing, and her friends needed to be virgins also. They needed to be women of good repute. And so what happened would be that once the, the work of preparing that room was finished, an announcement was made that it would be like today. It'll happen today, but it happened after dark, typically, in the evening. And so what would happen would be that the groomsmen, essentially, would come to the groom's home. They would light their torches, and they would accompany the groom to the home of the bride. And when they came close, then the <coughs> groomsmen would cry out, here is the bridegroom, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And they were calling to the women who were the attendants of the bride-to-be. And so these are the virgins in this story. They're the ones who are waiting, anticipating the feast, the wedding that will come. And then they would escort the bride out to meet her groom, and then he would escort her, and they would accompany all of the groomsmen and the uh, bridesmaids would accompany them to the home that had been prepared. And when they got to that home, they would usher the bride and the groom into the bridal chamber alone. <laughs> they didn't stay while, the, while it was consummated. And then after it was consummated, the groom would come and announce that they were indeed married, that they had consummated the marriage and the feast would begin. So that's the setting for this story. And so if they're not prepared and have enough oil to, to wait until the bridegroom arrives and then enough then to accompany the party to the home of the groom, then they would be shut out. They wouldn't participate in that wedding procession, as it were. And so that's what's happening here. There were some who were prepared if there were a delay and some who were not. So as again, our, our, our role is not to escape reality and just long for the coming again of Jesus Christ. We should always be longing for the coming of Christ. We should always pray for the coming of the kingdom. That's how he taught the disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's longing for the kingdom. We want to see his kingdom come, and we want to see not only his will be done in heaven, but on earth as well. We want to see a renewed covenant relationship between God and all people and God and the land, God and all his creation. We're longing for that, but not at the expense of failing to live for that same kingdom and try and establish that in our lives and then through our lives to reveal that kingdom as well just as Jesus did in his healing miracles and, and in the things that he said and in the stories that he told of the kingdom show the longing but the but the incarnation matters the fact that Jesus came as a human being tells us that our life this life matters we we can be sure about the future, sure about the coming again, sure about participating in the kingdom. And that frees us then to live today as though the kingdom were being established in and through us every single day. We are already in the covenant of marriage with him 
And so now it's incumbent upon us to act as though we're in a marriage covenant with him. To set our hearts on him, to set our hearts on his kingdom and his glory. If you want to see what it looks like, read the Song of Solomon again today. It's time for us to wake up and time for us to be the church. Not to to be so longing for the coming of the kingdom that we miss that what's under the sun does indeed matter to the one who is above and beyond the sun. It's a call to renew your vows today, not just in word but in deed. Allow that Holy Spirit to work within you to will and to work for the coming of the kingdom. Let's put aside all our concerns about elections and everything else and, and recommit ourselves to being the, the ones who bring the light of the world into the world, to being salt and light, not those who are consumed by politics, but those who are consumed with the king, the true king of all. Let us not be like those Israelites who said, we have no king but Caesar. Let's not have false gods. And this is a time when I see a lot of false gods. I see them in my own life. But in this political thing, let the Word of God expose those false gods to you, those things that that you think have to be. Because there's a different kingdom, there's a better kingdom, and there's a far better king than anybody we could ever elect for ourselves. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green, and if you've got anything you'd like to ask me, you'd like to say to me, you'd like to ask me to pray for, then use that link over there for Facebook for the webpage. I look forward to being with you again next week, and I hope your week is indeed blessed, and I hope you have a joyous uh, renewal of vows with the lover of your soul.